was um, a way of getting to feel better. channel like unc said it's um real talk recovery but a little bit about me was i grew up in arkansas super southern my mom and dad are my mom's from california my dad's from new york so it's like a my mom's mexican and my dad's italian so i was probably like it's a good it's a good mix so it's like i got my dad he's kind of like super loud and boisterous and then my mom's this little sweet mexican lady right and That's so also an East me, Coast, West Coast thing, too, for sure. Totally, totally. Yeah. And when I heard my parents met, they I was born in New York, but I only lived there till I was like five. And then we moved to Arkansas. And um, I grew up here all my life, you know. So growing up, I was always like, I don't like to use this as an excuse, but I know that so many other addicts can relate to this. Like I was always different than everyone else. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like I I never quite felt like I fit in from a kid. Like I'm talking about from like the time I was in kindergarten till, you know, when, even when I got older, like I was always the girl that was, first of all, I went to a really country school. So all the kids at school used to call me taco and burrito. Oh my and God. I can, Dude, I would come home and I would be crying to my mom and dad because I didn't understand, you know, because the way our family, the way my parents raised us is we don't see color. Like, I love everybody. And um, as I got older, I I figured out and I realized, you know, down south here where, you know, it's very, um, very prejudiced. You know, you got a lot of people who... um, still operate in that old school type of way. And that's very much how the school was that I went to. So growing up, I was kind of just, you know, kind of the odd man out. But as I got, no, as I got older, I started struggling like with my weight and stuff. And I think like all of us girls kind of struggle with that, but my dad's a bodybuilder and he's always been like super in shape. So mm-hmm. I always wanted to, you know, make my dad proud of me. And I always wanted to be like in shape. And so when I started hitting puberty, I started like gaining weight and stuff. And it really, really bothered me. And, um, and we like, and I like to eat. My mom cooks freaking bomb ass Mexican food. Um, my dad's, you know, grandmother, my, my dad's mom came down and taught my mom how to um, cook bomb ass Italian food. And so all my life, and it was like food was something that we celebrated with. So it's like, even before I got on drugs, I had an addiction and it was food food and sugar and anything that would like make me feel differently. You know, if I was having a bad day and I came home and I was upset, my mom would 
whip up something good, you know, and me and my two little sisters would, you know, eat or she would, you know, make cupcakes and chocolate chip cookies. And, you know, I'm not saying that like I was 400 pounds or anything, but I was a good 20, 30 pounds overweight as a, as a teenager, you know? Okay. And that with me until I got older. And so when I got older, about 17 years old, I dropped all the weight because I starved myself at band camp. (laughs) That one time at band camp, like I'm serious. (laughs) I went to band camp and um, I remember going and I found this guy that I had the biggest crush on. And I was like, damn it, I'm not going to go another day like being overweight. So I started this diet while I was at band camp because I was there for two weeks And all I did was eat a Snickers bar and drink a Diet Coke every day. That was it. And I came back and I probably lost 20 pounds in two weeks. Like, I'm not even joking. Mm -hmm. And um, I started my freshman year after that. And when I got into my freshman year, everybody was like, damn, Nicole, you look so good. And I became a cheerleader and I started um, doing the dance team. And so I just kind of like hit hit right then. Like everybody was starting to notice me. And that's when... Like my, my freshman year into my sophomore year of high school is when I started like hanging out with a bunch of different people who were like drinking and smoking pot. And, um, that's kind of what introduced me into the whole scene of like even trying drugs because the way I was raised up, my mom and dad, my mom was Pentecostal. I don't know if you know that it's like a religion where, um, you can't cut your hair. Um, you can't wear makeup. You can't wear earrings. You have to wear dresses, no pants. Um, So when I was growing up, we were super, I was super sheltered, you know? So once I got into high school and my mom kind of like left that religion behind and we just, we were like non-denominational. Then I started like coming out of my shell because like I could wear pants and shorts and, you know, I could like dress cute. And that was another thing that like really held me back when I was younger was that I was had to wear dresses all the time and I already felt so insecure and that just added to it even more, you know? Totally. So once, once I got in high school, then I started dabbling with um, drugs and alcohol and that's kind of how my whole addiction started and it just got worse and worse and worse from there. And then by the time my addiction got to its the worst point, I had been to like five rehabs. I went to prison for a year. Holy shit. Um, Oh yeah. 365 for what? days. For what? I had a class C felony possession of methamphetamine. Oh, Oh yeah. I keep forgetting that the laws are so different in other States. Like it's like, yeah. Class five <laughs> felony just for possession over there. They screwed me so hard. Let me tell you. Okay. You know, a syringe, right? Yeah, of course. This, <laughs> <laughs> this, sorry. I had a syringe in my purse. That oh. had less than one unit of methamphetamine in it. And that was enough for a felony? Felony, class C. And they give you a year for that? Well, I got put on probation for three years. And oh. you know what? You're yeah. I went into that probation officer every single day and failed every single drug test. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's... I couldn't pass the screens. I didn't, I, I wasn't ready to get sober and... Even if I was ready, the way the state, like the way they set me up was they set me up for failure. You know, they said, okay, you have to pay these fees and you have to come in here and test on these days. And that's it. Like they just threw me to the wolves. I didn't have any kind of 
like rehab or treatment. And I wasn't going to take drug court. There was no way oh, I was going to do that. Drug court sucks. There's the, the fallout and failure rate of drug courts horrible. No matter where you go, it's so ridiculous. Um, but probation is still not adequately structured to, to have any kind of rehabilitation at all. Anyway, it's like, they're trying to force you into submission and most addicts I know are, are extremely defiant. At least I knew I was, you know, um, especially if you're not ready to change, you know, like, uh, I would try and get over on tests all the time. We had all the different techniques, you know, where there's a detox drink or, or, or someone else's pee or, or whatever, you know, anything we could get away or the whizinator, you know, like we, we, whizinator, the whizinator. I have tried everything. I tried everything. And this, my probation officer would catch me every single time. So when I caught that charge, that was 2008. So I graduated in the year 2000. By the time I graduated high school, I was, I was a daily methamphetamine, cocaine, smoker and sniffer. You know what I mean? Like I was, I loved doing stimulants and it just became like something I was, I did it. I would, I would snort a lot of meth before I would go to my job. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and then I would go and I would work my ass off and people loved me. Like I was, I was a good worker. Like I still am. I was assistant manager at many, many jobs high on methamphetamine, you know, and that was beginning of my addiction where I still looked really good. You couldn't tell I was strung out because I hadn't started shooting yet. Mm-hmm. And so I was still managing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like oh, yeah. my addiction, unmanageable because I was addicted to dope, but I was still able to go to my job, pay my bills, give my dad my money for my car payment. You know, I was still kind of like floating above, you know, I wasn't drowning in my addiction yet. Yeah. You were functioning. Right. Totally functioning. And in 2008, when I caught that charge, Six months before I caught the charge is when I started shooting up methamphetamine. And I was living with a dope cook. And w- I was living in this, this trailer, um, bare, no running water, no electricity down there. Like, we would have to, like, rig it up with these wires and stuff to have electricity and stuff. We would go outside and, like, dig holes to shit in. Like, I'm not oh even lying God. to you. Like, fucking get it hell and it, it was a dope cook's house it was a meth motherfucking lab and um i would go in there and they would let me i would get dope for free because i would shuck matches all night long oh for the phosphorus and, uh, yes <laughs> I, school dope. this is not like dope that they have now back in the day like you would shuck matches and now that they have ice, it's like totally different now but this is like you know little country ass um redneck Meth cooks. It's like a know? shake. It's like a shake and bake lab, basically. Well, it wasn't. This was a little bit different than shake and bake, but it was on. The, it was. It was a little bit before you know they had started doing shake and bake. But okay. I have done shake and bake. But this <laughs> is like where we have to sit up, and you would have to like have like the stove, and they would cook it, and it would then they would take it out, put it in the microwave on a Pyrex, and yep. microwave that. It would crystallize to the Pyrex, and then we would scrape it all down and put it yeah. in the bag until it dried. And I would be sitting there, like, just high on the hog, being so happy I'm getting, like, free dope. <laughs> Holy shit. 
and I lived there with that dude for like a year, just cooking dope with him. And then, um, my parents started getting phone calls to their house because what was happening is people who knew my mom and dad were coming by that house to get meth. And so my parents, yeah, my parents were getting phone calls from other parents saying, we saw your daughter or, or our, or one of their kids said, we saw your daughter or so-and-so saw your daughter all strung out at this guy's house. And she's, you know, in a lot of trouble and you couldn't pay me to leave there. Like I wanted to stay there because he was feeding my addiction, you know? Yeah. And so I lived with him. And then one day, me and this other guy, they call him um, Pacemaker Quincy. Me and Pacemaker Quincy. Because he had a pacemaker, and he's a black guy, and he shot dope with us. <laughs> me and, That's an awesome me and name. We had six grams of dope, and we went to get in the, my car. I had a little blue Ford Focus. It was brand new, too. I bought it brand new. It only had like um, 12 miles on it when I bought it. I was proud of that car. I drove that car until the wheels fell off. <laughs> but we got in my car and we were driving into town and he had six grams of dope in his sock and I had that syringe in my purse. And we stopped by at these two chicks' house. That we call them the Terry Twins. They're wow. basically undercovers. They tell, they're, they're CIs. And we stopped by there because they needed dope. But they, w- they were like drug addicts too, but they were also cops. You know, they would go to the cops and tell them who was doing what. And then the cops would bust us, you know, well, that's what they did. And we were driving down the road after we dropped dope off to them. And we didn't even get probably a mile from their house. And there was literally three big ass black SUVs surrounded my car. And then a bunch of marked police cars surrounded us and they jumped in the car. I'm talking, my car was still driving. Quincy was sitting in the driver's side and this dude flung the door open threw Quincy out on the ground and I'm sitting in the passenger seat and the car's just rolling forward and they get, get out, get on the ground. And I'm laying on the ground, spread Eagle, you know, his person. What's in this purse to Mayo? What's in this purse? Because they knew my mom and dad. They knew who I was. I don't know whose purse that is. That purse ain't mine. That's somebody (laughs) else's. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And I'm fuck y'all. Oh, this isn't your purse. It has your wallet in it. It has your ID in it. I've been set up. I was so crazy. I was like, I don't know whose purse that is. <laughs> and Officer Jessup reached in there and he found my syringe. He was pissed. He was like, what if I had gotten stuck? What if I had gotten stuck? Well, how would you feel about that? And I was just like a live wire. I was like, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So they, they cuffed us up, put us in the back of the police car and um, took us in and booked us. And Quincy looked at me and he was like, don't even worry about it. We're going to be out of here in an hour. And next thing you know, some tweaker came up there, put their Harley up and got us out. Whoa. Got us out. And we got out like an hour after we got booked in and we got out on bond and I went like literally on the run. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) I was hiding out for like forever. It felt like six months. It might've been shorter than that. It was tweaker time, you know? Yeah. Oh, I know. Exactly. They called me in and they had me, um, the lawyer was like, let's talk about what you're going to do. Do you want to do drug court? And I had heard so many, I've listened to you and your, um, the co-hosts, um, stories about drug court. Oh yeah. I, 
and I had heard stories before I even heard your, your guys' stories. So back then I was like, oh, hell no, I'm not getting on drug court. They're just going to get me on there and then throw all these things at me that I can't accomplish. So I didn't take it. You know, I took probation. And I, like I said, I ended up failing every single drug test. My probation officer sent me to treatment once. And then after I came back and relapsed after that, then she sent me to prison. So you did a year in prison. What was that experience like for you? Well, I have so much to tell you about that. <laughs> so <laughs> the prison I went to was a boot camp style prison. It's called RPF and it's in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And um, let me just explain it to you. Have you ever heard of like JIT camps or like for, they're for nonviolent offenders. They have them down in Florida and they put all the boys in them. And what it is, it's an open compound. Okay. So you, you, we run the compound, the prisoners run the compound. Like we cook, we do the laundry. We, I mean, we are, we do everything and we just have guards that supervise. So the way it was set up is there was six units. Okay. And a unit is just a big building where they have your racks, which are all your beds lined up a little like living room area where they have like a little TV and a microwave and then all the showers, which is, you know, you have to shower together. There's like six shower heads inside of a shower and then all the toilets. That's a unit. Usually have about 60 girls to a unit. There's about 300 girls on the whole compound. And so I remember the first day I got there, like I went to County and I sat, I sat in County for 60 days and in county, like, you know, everybody, I knew everybody from there because we were all like tweakers and drug addicts. So a lot of the girls I would know and we, I got money on my books and we took care of each other. It was like when girls get locked up, it's like camaraderie. We all come together. Like I, I bitches were teaching me how to make a sports bra out of underwear. They were teaching me how to make tampons if I needed them. Like it was freaking crazy. Like they taught me so much to prepare me when I went to prison. Wow. So, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And then the first, because I thought I was going to go in there and bitches were going to be whooping my ass. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because you got to, like, I was a drug addict, but I had never been in any trouble. Like, I've never been to jail in my life. So this was all just, like, so new to me. So in county, like I said, we all joined together. They helped me out. We would help each other out with food. If we didn't have enough money on our commissary, it was pretty cool. Then the first day I went to prison, like my, when they have orientation or like where they're, they're teaching you, like, you got to walk in first thing and they give you like what you dress out in every day, which is just like these yellow looking scrubs almost. And then they give you like two sport bras that are white, you know, two pairs of white underwear, some socks and these little like ghetto ass Walmart style Converse shoes. And, um, they have you check in, they give you your ADC number and then they have you take a bath, take a shower. Okay. So like, this was the first moment where I was like, I'm in prison. I'm fucked. I can't leave. And I wanted to start crying, but I held back the tears because I knew if I did, if I started crying, these bitches that were standing beside me, were going to clown me so hard. So I'm in this big ass shower with, with a 300 pound black woman on my right. And a 200 pound white girl on my left. <laughs> and I'm like 120 pounds dripping wet, right? You got to understand, I have been tweaking, you know? Yeah. And so they are delousing us. And that with this powder that they put on you to delouse you, and then they make you get underneath a cold ass shower. 
all of us together. It was like a Nicole sandwich in between these big old girls. (laughs) And I was mortified. All your dignity, everything, but ass naked. I hadn't seen a razor in 60 days. So I got, my legs are so hairy and my pit foot, I look like a man with hair growing out of me all over the place. (laughs) Embarrassing, right? Oh, wow. it was, it's bad. And then it, it, what makes it even worse is like all these girls in one place together, you got girls who are starting their period. You got girls who aren't clean, who get staph infection all over themselves. And you have to like be around those girls. Yep. I remember the first unit they put me in, the girl that was sleeping below me, I was on the top bunk. She had these staph boils all over her body, you know, Fuck. I mean, underneath like, all on her stomach, all along where her like little her breasts were at. It was just like it's sad, you know. And and she didn't know how to like take care of it, so it's just like always oozing and stuff, you know. Oh God. So my first three nights there, they put you in the hole. They throw you in the hole, and you got to sit in there because they got to make sure you ain't got hepatitis or tuberculosis or any of that other stuff, you know. So they put you in the hole just to do all these like medical like tests on you. Clear. Yeah, to make sh- to make sure you're clear to go into general population. Oh my god! So I'm in the hole, and but luckily the, there was another girl in there with me. Her name was Nikki, so we were in the same um, cell together. She had one bed, I had another on the other side, and we had a toilet, little silver toilet in there. And I'll never forget this girl, Nikki, because she was just like, we just sat there and we sedated up all night talking about how we, how our life was when we were out there in the streets. And the reason she was locked up is because she drove her car through a church while she was tweaking. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, I'll never forget her. Like I've never seen her since then, but I'll always remember her because we just sat there and told you know, we just told war stories all night long yeah. for those three days locked up in that hole because I couldn't sleep. I, I had so much anxiety and I had so much like I was picturing like going into prison and then all these bitches waiting for me and like having brass knuckles and them like all beat my ass or something. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not like that at all. It's especially not in a in a nonviolent offender prison where it's just like most of the people there were drug addicts and thieves. Yeah. It sounds like a trustee dorm, almost like the equivalent of one that I went to where it's like, if you're a first timer or a nonviolent, they'll let you do work around the the facility for an earlier like release date, you know? Oh yeah. We all, that's what we didn't get released early, but we got to work. Like when I first got there, they assigned me to this job on the compound where I was like, it's called CWC. And it was basically like mowing the lawn, the hard work, right? Uh-huh. And I did that for like a week. And this lady, one of the guards, saw me outside and she goes, hey, come over here. You know, and I was like, what's up? You know, talking to the guard. She's a cool lady. And she said, do you want to come work in laundry? And I was like, yeah, because laundry, when you get, that's like a coveted position on the compound, right? Yeah. Laundry, you get to be by yourself, basically. The guard's not down, breathing down your throat. We wake up at three o'clock in the morning, we get on this truck and we go around from each um, compound, each building, and we pick up all the laundry and we take it down the hill um, to the laundry place. You know, we go inside this little, it's like a big old warehouse with these huge washers and dryers. 
the dryers were so big. This, this is probably one of the funnest moments I had there that we could cut the heat off to them and get inside of them and ride inside of them like a roller coaster. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and we would sneak cigarettes in there. Somebody was sneaking cigarettes on visitation. Don't ask me how they got them in, yeah. but they got them. And uh, we would be smoking cigarettes down there behind the building. And the it was like right across the street from the men's prison. So we could see the guys from, you know, like it was probably like three football fields away. It was like, a, it was far. But we could see, you know, them on top of their building doing work and stuff. And we'd all be, you know, waving to them and screaming like little whores and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I got in laundry and I loved it. And I worked there until I got out. Like I stayed down there for the whole year I was in there. We had a good time. Like we made the best out of it. Just like just like you make the best when you go into rehab. We made the best out of being locked in prison. And okay. I got so fat there, man. I mean, I probably gained like 60 pounds because I went from not eating ever to like, ooh, we would cook up some good stuff. And then on the weekends, we would make spreads in our dorms, like in the comp- yep. in our little comp. And we would have like tortillas, ramen noodles, crunched up hot Cheetos. I mean, uh, chili, this chili mac stuff that we would put on there and then roll it all up. And then we would all cut it up and each of us would get a you know, a little section of it. We had, it was fun. It was fun for what it was. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Totally. I know all about spread night. That was every Friday for LA County jail. Cause that's when store came <laughs> in. So then everyone would just pull in things together and makes, and it's crazy because it's like on the outs, I'm like, Oh, spread looks disgusting. But when you're in there, the food is so terrible that a spread is like a, you know, a five star. Like, yeah, exactly. It's crazy. <laughs> It's so bizarre to me. I was just like, what was I thinking? But it's like when you're in there and you're like, uh, like the, the food was just so bland and not seasoned. It was horrible. I was just like dying for a spread. Whereas like now I'm like, ugh, I, 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 I don't know. Some, some guys are still institutionalized. So when like they'll make a spread at the house and I'm like, you don't have to live like that anymore. <laughs> you know, We're not in jail, I- you know? I see a lot of people like that on YouTube that have like prison channels and stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, here's my thing. Like, I'm trying to get away from that. Like, it's cool and everything to show people that have never been to prison. Hey, this is what it was like, you know, but I'm living, I'm not trying to be like living that old life anymore. Like I would not trade my life now back to go back to going into prison or to go back to my addiction, no matter how bad it got. You know, I laugh and I tell stories about how it was in prison because I can now because I'm past that, you know. Yeah. But when I was going through it, when when I was in the moment at that time, I remember crying like every Saturday. My parents would come to visit me and my mom and dad are still married. They've been married for like 50 something years and they raised me right. Like I had a good upbringing and um, my parents would come and see me every Saturday. And I just remember the look in their eyes, you know having to come see me in prison. You know, I was their firstborn. I was, you know, the oldest of three girls and I had had so much potential. Like I was very smart in high school. I was very athletic. I was just, I had a great personality. I was really outgoing. I was, be- I'm beautiful still, but like I had so much going for me, but I had this like insecurity where I felt like Everybody else was fucking getting high. So I started getting high. Do you know what I'm saying? Like 
I didn't even have anything bad happen in my life. Like I wasn't beaten. I wasn't like sexually molested. You know, I wasn't like homeless or had parents that were not there for me. Like I had an amazing family. And sometimes it's like just to be comfortable in your own skin, you know? And the stimulants really made me feel like I always could do anything. I, I loved being able to be so hype and be so like, I just felt like I was on top of everything. And then the fact that it really like cut my appetite down, that really was attractive to me at that time, you know? Oh, yeah. And by the time I was wanting to get, like the, by the time I had any kind of dreams or aspirations or anything I wanted to do, like I was already hooked, you know? Yeah. And opiates came into my life after I got out of prison. Like I'd really, I had only done opiates. I think I was like 17 and I got my wisdom teeth pulled out and I had like a prescription for oxy fives or something like that. And I remember taking them all in like one day. And my mom was like, Oh shit, because I have such an addictive personality with anything, you know, like food, coffee, anything that is like, even gives me any kind of like, instant gratification. Like I take it to the next level. But after that, like I never did opiates after that, you know, like I might party and do them sometime, but like, it wasn't like a problem until I started injecting Roxy's and eating methadone wafers, you know, those big 40 milligram wafers, the orange ones. Yes. the, the, I I don't color they were, but I had started dating this guy after I think I was like 20 something. And I started dating this guy and, he was on like pain pills real hard. And so I started getting wafers all the time. And once I started getting on those wafers, it was like, I just had to have them all the time. And I would take them before I went to work. Like I've always been like poly substance abuser, like anything that I, anything I liked stimulants. I liked opiates. I liked cocaine. I liked weed. I liked drinking. You know, I was even an alcoholic for six months at, well, while I was on probation because I couldn't, I was trying not to pop pills. I was trying not to get high because I didn't want to go to prison. So I started drinking every day Mm -hmm. and I would drink every single day, you know? And then I was like, holy shit, I can't even wake up in the morning without drinking, you know? And then I got sent to prison. So thank God, because I probably would have drank myself to death. Like I had no, it's like I had no limits, no boundaries to anything. And if it, I wanted to hang out and party all the time, like I was constantly the center of, you know, the party doing keg stands and dancing on the bar and just like the ultimate party chick. That was me, you know, and I loved it. I had so much fun until it wasn't fun anymore until I was like a home, hopeless, homeless junk. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know exactly it what you used- mean. I was, uh, I, no matter how desperate I tried, I could never reclaim the glory days of like my early drinking and drug use. Like it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then, yeah, I, it was just like the, it's like, what's the point? It's finally, I came to the conclusion, like it's never going to be the way it used to be, you know? Right. And I feel like I spent so many years like trying to like, have fun with my addiction, you know? And it wasn't like, after I got out of prison, I stayed sober for like nine months because, um, I paroled out to this halfway house 
And my probation officer was like, you can't come back to our, to hot springs. Cause that's where I was living. When I got the charge, mm-hmm. you have, you can't come back here. So I paroled out to the city called Little Rock. It's just the capital of Arkansas. And I stayed sober for a good nine months because I was in this transitional living, you know? Yeah. And I was my life together. I was working um, as an assistant manager at Kroger. Like I was really doing good. And and I was working a program. I had a sponsor. I was, I was on my fourth step. Like I was really getting into like AA and NA and, just trying to focus on why was I using drugs and alcohol? Or what was it? What was inside of me that was making me feel like I had to change the way I felt, you know? And um, I was doing so good. And then I really, honestly, this happens to me so much when I try to get sober. And it's happened to me many, many times before. I would get a job and I would do so well at it. I would get promoted, you know? And then I would let that job take priority. And I would stop going to meetings I would stop calling my sponsor. I would stop praying and talking to God and I would get unconnected from that support that I had to stay sober. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I ended up relapsing. And once I relapsed after I got out of prison, I didn't come back. Like I stayed out and that's when I was up here in Little Rock. My parents were in hot springs and um, I had nowhere to live. So I was basically sleeping on my friend's couch and I was getting so fucked up and I was tweaking and shooting Roxy's off and on. Like I would tweak and then I would shoot Roxy's and try to come down. Then I would shoot meth and then I would shoot Roxy's shoot meth. And so I was constantly in this state of hallucination. Um, I remember one time in particular, I was walking down the street in Southwest Little Rock at 3 AM. This is the hood. Okay. Yeah. And this police officer found me because I was walking and I got on this lady's porch, right? And I looked on this lady's porch and I saw all these brownies, weed brownies. At least that's what I thought were there. <laughs> and I started sweeping. She had a broom on the porch and I started sweeping her porch frantically like a crazy person at three o'clock in the morning. And she called the police on me <laughs> and the police came there and they were like, are you okay? And I was hallucinating so badly, man that I was seeing my job, my boss from my job. I thought she was there. I thought, you know, my parents were there. I was talking to people that weren't there. I had been up for days and they ended up taking me to the hospital. This is the first time that when I think that it really hit me that I, I'm never, I can't stop getting high. I went into a coma for seven days in the hospital and my parents there seven day coma. Um, they actually, kept asking me, what did you do? What did you do? Why can't you? Cause they were giving me Thorazine. They were shooting me up with Halidol trying to knock me out. And I wasn't going to sleep. Like I was so fucked up. I was bad. And my kidneys and my, like my internal organs were shutting down. And that's when I went into the coma and my mom, I woke up seven days later and my mom was there and she was like, you've been in a coma for seven days. You've been here for seven days. And I remember her looking at me with tears running down her face. And all I could think about was how I needed to get out of there so I could go get some Roxy's and shoot up. Fuck. You know what I'm saying? Like, and my mom, you know, and she was asking me, do you know where your car is? Do you know where this is? And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know where nothing was. Thank God that some of the hood rats I was hanging out with, kept my car at their house and didn't let nobody take it and sell it, you know, because, um, I was, 
I was so sick. Like I was just so, and I, and that's exactly what I did. I got out of there and I went and got high, you know? Yeah. And, um, I kept doing that for years and 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 years until when I met my husband, I met him in 2012 and we were both high, you know, getting yeah. fucked up and fell in love. We were both drug addicts and we were like, I remember when I met him, I was like, this is, he's my person. You know, he's just like me. We were both super smart. He's got his master's degree. He's from a good family. He's just was on drugs, you know? And, uh, he started taking me under his wing and kind of like helping me out, like giving me a place to stay and, you know, feeding me. And cause I didn't have nowhere to go. I was homeless when I met him Yeah. and we ended up falling in love. It was like this codependent drug addiction relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. But we ended up getting pregnant like a year and a half into our relationship. And that's when everything just like, when I got pregnant, I wish I could come on your podcast and be like, yeah, I got pregnant and I totally stopped doing drugs and I raised my baby and that's it. But I got pregnant and I didn't get sober and I shot up the whole time I was pregnant with my son. Um, I went into labor at 5 a.m. on July 3rd and I had my son um, on July 4th morning early that morning. And, um, I thought they're going to take him from me because when I went into labor, I was high on meth. Like I was really high and, um, they didn't take him from me and he was perfect when he was born. He came out with no drugs in his system. Don't ask me how that happened because I really don't know. The only thing I can tell you, and I don't mean to, like, I'm going to get a little choked up. The only thing I could tell you is that my son is a miracle because I was not protecting him. I was getting the high the whole time and I am not proud of that. Like I'm, I have so much shame around that, but like, it was just what it was. Like I could not stop. That's how my addiction had total control of my life. I was, you know, blessed with this beautiful, beautiful baby boy and I couldn't even stop getting high. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's the, that's what's so hard about addiction is that even if you have someone, especially a child that you care so much about, and then you just can't find a way to stop, it's the most heartbreaking thing ever. I see it happen all the time. But, um, I mean, what the only thing I would say is that you've, you've overcome all that now. So it's like you had amazing odds stacked against you and you went through those hurdles, and that's more than a lot of people can say. So, I mean, I mean, I commend you for that alone. That's, um, that's like amazing, you know? And, um, you like looked at women who did that and judged them. Like, I would be like, I'll never do that. I'll never shoot up when I'm pregnant. I'll never have a child and be addicted to drugs, you know? And then everything that I said I wouldn't do, all of it came true. I did every single thing I said I wouldn't do. I'll never suck a dick for a hydro. Did it. I'll never, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like that's how bad it got. Like to where I was so desperate that like I would do anything for a fucking 10 milligram hydrocodone. You know what I'm saying? Like that's how so desperate I was and so sick. I was ate up with addiction and um, everything I can remember, like d- different stages of my like when I would get sober and then I would relapse and then I would get sober and I would relapse and I would always be like, oh, I won't do that. And then I would come back to treatment like the next year. Oh, I did that. 
And then the next year I would go back out. I will never do that. And then I would come back to treatment. Oh, I did that, you know? And it was like, and so when I hear other people, because I talk to so many different people who are either in active addiction or are getting sober. And I hear them, you know, say the same things like, oh, I would never do that. Like, I haven't gotten that bad. I won't let myself. I love that line. I won't let myself get that bad. If you're a drug addict like I was, you ain't got no control. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I I did the exact same thing. I told myself I never used needles. And I told myself, dude, I used to be straight edge when I was growing up. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to do drugs. But... (laughs) Little, yeah, saw how, I mean, everyone can see how that turned out. I did all, every drug it put in front of me, you know, like it was like, I, but it, it, it wasn't just like, I just went off the hammer. It's like, I, I, I raised the bar a little bit. So it's like, okay, I won't do those drugs. And then I did them and then I'm like, okay, well I won't shoot them up. And then I did that. And then it's like, okay. So I just saw the progression of where it was. And I was like, okay, I'm in way too deep. Like it took me a lot of over like getting past my pride and ego to actually admit I had a problem that I couldn't, um, uh, fix myself. I needed help outside of myself. Cause I always felt like I had to be in control of the situation and that I, it was only up to me to bear that weight on my shoulders. But then, you know, I mean, recovery, it's all about accepting help from outside sources, you know, if that makes sense. I was the same. I know you're right. I was the same exact way. Like I felt like I should be able to get this on my own. Like, you know, I don't want to bother anybody else with my problems. I should be able to handle this. And that attitude, that thinking that I should be able to get better on my own or, you know, this is what kept me from getting sober because I, just like you said, it was my pride. It was like, I was embarrassed. You know what I mean? I was ashamed. I was like, I let myself go. I let myself go. And, you know, when you come from a family, like we weren't rich or nothing, but my parents, like we have everything we needed. We're a middle-class family, you know? And I had a car, I had a nice place to live. I had nice clothes. And by the time I was at my my lowest point in my addiction, like I was going to soup kitchens. I was going to the damn, whatchamajigger, um, Salvation Army to get food, you know, like what? That was how, like, that I, I, and then I would look at myself and I would be like, that's why I always know, like, nobody's too good to go down that route of addiction because addiction is truly losing the power of choice. You know, alcohol and drugs are introduced into my system. I lose the power of choice. I can't make good decisions when I'm on drugs, you know? And, and I used to think that I was controlling it. You know, it's just like this delusion. It's this like, oh, yeah, it's a mirage out there. I've got this all under control. And you're literally falling apart in front of everybody's eyes, you know? Oh, no, exactly. It's it's and then I think the social the negative social stigma against addiction and, and using drugs, it's like it pushes an addict deeper into seclusion and hiding the fact that they have a problem because they're, they're in fear of being shamed and judged by other people. So then they don't open up about it. And it, it, it actually makes, makes the situation worse. I think, you know, at least for me, I know that was the case. I didn't want to, um, I was embarrassed and, um, I was ashamed 
to even even admit the the things I was doing to myself and you know I was in in denial about how I was affecting other people you know um I mean and I was just so out of it like I wasn't even fully aware of like any everything that was going on I mean or I was just like putting it on the back burner you know it was insane um now that I have some clean time uh, behind me I can like look back on it and be like oh yeah I was shot out like <laughs> I I was just like it was like wow I really let myself go back then and I've just been learning it just scraped the surface of like it wasn't just using drugs just to get high it was like to numb out uh negative feelings and feeling uncomfortable and avoiding situations and not um confronting you know past traumas is all that shit you know and uh it's been surreal um but so let uh you were talking about the moment you wanted to make a change um Mm -hmm. can you detail the steps you took to get to where you are now yeah okay for sure i i'm not like i just want you guys to know like I know I'm so long-winded, so bear with me because I just <laughs> tell the story, get into it, and I'm just like, boom, 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 boom. No, you know what I mean? it's good. I love it. Okay, cool. So, okay, I gave birth to my son, right? And um, I thought for sure they were going to take him. And what I mean by they is the, the state, CPS, Child Protective Services. But they didn't. Nobody was called. I think it was because it was a July 4th. It was a holiday. They didn't have a lot of staff there. I shot the baby out. In two days, I was gone. We left, you know, came home, and I started trying to be a mom. My mom had came down because I kind of didn't tell you guys this, but my addiction got so bad that my parents left Arkansas, and they moved back to New York. Because at the time, me and my sister both, my middle sister, Michelle, were in active addiction. And my parents were just, it was breaking their heart watching us kill ourselves. So my dad and my mom moved to New York and bought a house there and started their life as retirees up there. Mm -hmm. So after I gave birth to my son, we came back. We, uh, me and my husband, we were just boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And we were living with his parents. And... His parents, bless their heart, like they really were trying to help us. You know, they were trying to give us all the support we could to be, you know, good parents and raise this little boy. And um, my mom had flew down from New York and she stayed the week, uh, the first week my son was born. She stayed with me at uh, my at my in-laws house and was teaching me how to breastfeed and teaching me how to change diapers. And and I stayed sober. I stayed sober white knuckling it for like a good three months because I wanted, I don't know. It was hard. Believe me. It was really hard. I wanted Nathaniel cause they, everybody had just stressed to me, had so much stress on this breastfeeding thing that he needed to have like that milk because it was like the way he was going to be healthy. And so I really, you know, white knuckled it for a couple months. I didn't ever leave the house basically. And I stayed at home for good 90 days with this little baby and never left. Well, the minute I was able to leave the house and get out, I got back on drugs. I was, I relapsed. It started with Xanax and that like loosened me up a little bit. And then I just went on this whole bender, like a methamphetamine bender. I left my husband with us, with a little boy, with my son, Nate is his name. And, um, I left Neil with Nate and I left and didn't come back for days, stayed out getting high at all these different people's houses 
And, um, I did that, kept doing it. I would get a job, get fired. Neil was trying to work, but he was getting high with me too. We would leave our son here with my mother-in-law and not come back for a couple days. And then we would come back and show up. It was just a shit show. And about two days before my son turned one year old, my friend Tara called CPS on me. Ooh. Oh, man. And um, they had come to my house three times. And I guess I didn't know they were coming and I didn't answer the door or they they left a note said Child Protective Services has been by. We need you to get a hold of us right away. And my heart literally dropped into my stomach because I knew I knew I was like, I am fucked. I'm fucked. I called up there and they said, we need you to come in and submit to a drug screen. You know, we've had a call in that said you are negligent and you are on drugs and we are worried about the, 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 you know, we're worried about your son if he's okay. And so I came up there and me and my father-in-law went up there and I took a drug screen and I failed for benzos, methamphetamine, um, marijuana, but no opiates. And, um, no, I failed for opiates and benzos, no meth, excuse me, because here in Arkansas, if you file, if you fail for methamphetamine, they'll take your kid right then. Damn. So I failed for benzos and opiates because I was shooting Roxy's. And so I left and they said, it's okay. You go home. We're going to come by later on today. We're going to drug screen your husband. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put a order of protection in for your son. And what that means is you'll still get to have your son. He'll stay with you, but you're now going to have to come submit to drug screens. You're going to have to take parenting classes. You're going to have to show us that you're changing your life or else we're going to take your kid. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, they came up down to the house. They drug screen Neil. He also failed for, um, for opiates and benzos. And thank God I didn't fail for meth. I think I had like had, maybe shot meth like three days earlier. And it was just by the grace of God, it was out of my system. Right. Well, I thought everything was going to be okay. I thought my son was going to stay with us. And the next day they came back and they said, we decided we're going to take your son. And I freaked the fuck out. I was like, I was freaking out. Like I, and now when I look back on it, I realized that them taking my son saved my damn life. Because if they had left my son with me or gave or given my son to my mother-in-law, I wouldn't have gotten sober. But they gave my son to some stranger and that really like that motivated me. So the minute they took Nathaniel, it was the most. I had to take my son to the office with his backpack packed and all his clothes. And he was he just turned he was two days about to turn one and I had to give him over to this lady. I didn't even know her. Fuck. And I was like, can you please take me to detox? And the lady said she would. So they took me to detox that day. Um, and I stayed in detox for five days. Five and, um, days. I stayed, yeah, I stayed there for five days. And um, <laughs> they detoxed me with Suboxone. And then it was like real easy. It's like an easy transition. So I was just shooting those 30 milligram Roxy's. Uh-huh. So I stayed for five days. And then on the sixth day, they were going to let me out. And I was like, man, I can't leave here. Cause it was a Sunday. And I knew if I left that Sunday, I was going to go get high. 
And so I was like, please let me stay the night so I can just go from here straight to the treatment center, right? And they let me stay one more day. And I went from there straight into the rehab. Well, shucky ducky, when I got to the rehab, man, I'm telling you what, I thought that I was going to be able to handle it. I thought I was going to get out and fight for my son and stay sober. And um, my, my, my husband was out here in the real world eating Xanax bars and getting high the whole time I was in treatment. <laughs> so I had court. We had court and he was like allowed to come pick me up. Right. So, of course, I was like, please bring me some Xanax. Please bring me some Xanax. And so he did. And I was eating Xanaxes for like two weeks while I was in treatment. And they were drug testing me. And they're like, why are you not testing zero for nothing? Why aren't your drug screens coming back negative yet? Like something's going on here. Well, we were in the druggy buggy one day. We were going to the, to a meeting, right? And I was like, hey, Neil, drop off some Xanaxes out here. And, I, and I'll get them on my way back from the meeting. Okay, okay, bye. <laughs> damn, hot damn. We drive up in the druggy buggy to the rehab. And guess what? There's Neil putting the Xanaxes under a rock. And they caught him red-handed. <laughs> my heart popped into my stomach. I was like, damn it. I'm in trouble now. They're going to kick me out. They're going to kick me out. Now I'm really going to lose my kid, right? Oh. They gave me a second chance. They didn't kick me out. They they told my they told my CPS worker, and I remember her being like, Nicole, like this is so serious. We're going to terminate your rights if you don't get your life together. Like this is not a game, you know? And I was just like, I guess I, it was like, I just, I, I would like to say that like, I was like fighting for my son, but it was like, I was fighting for my son, but I was also doing like, I knew, I didn't know how to stay sober. And I was, I wanted to get high. Like I still wanted to get high so bad, you know? So I got out of treatment and my husband had gotten put on Suboxone while I was in treatment. And, um, I remember getting out of treatment. He said, I'm on Suboxone. And I was just like, damn man, because I was really, really against Suboxone. I had heard so many horror stories about it. And um, I really just, you know, didn't believe in it. And so I talked to my CPS worker and she had told, you know, she had was the one who recommended it to my husband and told him, you know, if you can't stay sober. Maybe this is something that will help you guys because you don't want to lose your son. You don't want to forfeit your son because you can't stay sober. And so me, my CPS worker, my doctor, my therapist, we all had a meeting of the minds and I decided to get put on Suboxone too. And this was the day, like two days after I got out of treatment. And um, I have probably been sober for like two weeks. And so the first couple of days after I got on Suboxone, um, I, it really made me like, it messed me up. It made me sleepy, made me sick. I just, it was just strong, too strong for me. Cause I was, like I said, two weeks sober, you know? Yeah. And, um, but it ended, what happened is about after the second or third day, it, it leveled out and I've never felt anything since. Like I've been on it for almost for four years now. Now I'm tapering off of it. But honestly, man, listen to me. And I know so many people judge people for being on Suboxone. And I know I was the same way. I thought, you don't want to be sober. You don't really want recovery if you're on Suboxone. I thought the same thing. Suboxone saved my life. All the times that I've like wanted to go out and get high or relapse or started to ha have any kind of like mental cravings, Suboxone, because I have that partial opioid go into those receptors in my brain, it saved my ass, man. And I haven't relapsed on alcohol. I haven't smoked a joint. I haven't eaten a pill. I haven't shot a drug 
in four years, four and a half, almost four and a half years now. And um, Suboxone has been like an insurance plan on my sobriety. But it wasn't until I got on Suboxone and got a sponsor and started like really working a 12-step program with an AA sponsor because I've always gone to AA because it's like really strong down here where I live. Yeah. I didn't like the Suboxone was like just baby basically like a catch-all. Like it just catched me if I wanted to fall. But like going through the steps with my sponsor and also doing therapy with, with a therapist is what's helped me to realize that like I've been using drugs for a long time because of the way I felt on the inside, because I was insecure, because I was unsure of myself, because I felt like I, you know, I had a lot of things that I never dealt with, just little things. Like I can remember when I was younger, my dad would always stress to me, Hey, you want to stay in shape? You want to stay skinny? And for some reason that like really stuck with me all my life. And so I would obsess over my weight, nothing against my dad. Like, he was just trying to help me. Like he meant it from a place of love. But as a young kid being told that, you know, if you're not skinny, nobody's going to like you. You need to get that weight off. You're not going to get married if you're not, you know, he didn't realize that it was like not helping me, you know, it was detrimental to me. And so being on Suboxone helped me to not, you know, fall back into my old ways. But I'll tell you this, I got many, many people in my life that I worked with sponsor wise. Like I've worked with probably about four sponsors since I've been sober and two of them were amazing. They were like, girl, do what you got to do. Just be on the medication, take it as prescribed, don't abuse it. And when you're ready to get off, you will know. And I'm like, okay. And then I had two who were like, I can't work with you. I can't work with you because you're on Suboxone. You know, you're not, you must not want to be sober. And so I'm never going to be like that with anybody. The way I think that the program is, is that we're supposed to meet people where they're at and support them and love them no matter what. And if somebody is on a medication that's helping save their life, like, who am I? I'm not a doctor. I don't have a PhD. I have no business, first of all, giving anybody any medical advice, you know? And I feel like what happens, I feel like what happens with a lot of people in like, different programs, not just the 12-step programs, other recovery programs, is we forget what it was like to be in active addiction. We forget what it was like to be back there. And we get so ahead in our sobriety that we're like, oh, you should, you should just not be on that. You know, and it's like, if it was that easy, I would have not been on it. You know what I mean? If it if I could have stayed sober, and this is how my doctor said it to me. He said, This is what we're gonna do. I want you to look at your past. Okay, and that's how we're going to decide what we need to do. Every time you've tried to get sober, what has happened? Well, I relapsed. You know, even after a significant amount of time, nine months, six months. So I used what my past has shown me to gauge what I would do now. And I didn't want to fall back and lose my kid. So I got on a medication that really helped me. It, like, I swear to God, it's like insurance. Like I said, it's like having State Farm insurance on your sobriety. You know, I could go and crash my car into a other car and my car is going to get fixed. That's how I, I view Suboxone. It's like having a cast on your leg. All right. And then you get your cast off. You're not going to just go and run and jump. You're going to go into physical therapy and you're going to learn how to work that leg again. That's how it is with Suboxone. It's a cast and then you get it taken off and then you're still not going to run out there and just be balls to the wall. You got to learn how to live your life 
you know, even further without that. It's just like a stepping stone or a tool to be used. And um, I just try to like share my experience with other people because I know that so many people are very judgmental of people who are on medically assisted treatment. And if I hadn't been in the situation, like I can tell you from my past experience that I was the same way I judged people, but it wasn't until I got put in that experience, that situation myself, it humbled me. It really humbled me and made me realize like, we don't know what anyone else's circumstances are. And addiction is so cunning, baffling and powerful that, you know, it's not just that easy for people to quit. If it was, I would have done that a long time ago. And everybody would have, you know? Yeah, exactly. And not everyone has the resources or the support that I had in my life, you know? So Suboxone, Vivitrol, Methadone, Sublocade, all these different medically assisted treatment options, these are things that are helping people to get to where they need to go, you know? And I, I believe in in it 100% because I'm living it right now, you know, and when I get off, I truly like intend to share my experience tapering off and let people know that it can be done, you know, and that you can go through it and taper off low and slow and you can succeed and I'm going to do it and I'm going to show people and I'm going to help other people to go through it, you know, too, because I have so many people it's not the people that are like benefiting from Suboxone that are speaking out. It's the people who have, you know, shot it up and abused it and sold it for heroin that are telling their stories. So you hear all these horrible stories. We need more people that are like actually going through and, and benefiting from the program to share and let other people know like, hey, that doesn't have to be your experience. And that's how it is with anything. You know, you make it what you're going to make it. And if you want your experience to be a positive one, that's what you got to do. Make it positive. I like that. I like the way you put that. Because, I mean, in, in at the end of the day, the one thing that matters the most is that you were able to overcome your substance abuse and get your your family back into your life. And that's – and if you needed, um, I, I guess the proper words, like an assisted treatment – plan like that then by all means go with it take that and run to the bank with it like i i do notice that there is this weird stigma in the fellowship and recovery where they're like oh like they act like you're cheating or something but it's like you know different things work for different people and it's like i i uh, i guess i get turned off by the fact that people get judgmental about things like suboxone or kratom or or whatever because it's like you're not that person you're not you don't live the same life as them you don't, and, and it's pretty prejudiced to even assume that you know what they're going through or what they're dealing with. We're all wired differently. I mean, um, some people are are just wired differently, and some people, some things work more successfully than others. Like, and I always like know what that feeling is like to be judged or to be looked at in a weird light for um, the way I was. Going it really, about, you know. It's crazy. It's so, because I can say I have four years sober and I've even had people like comment on my videos and say, oh, you're on Suboxone? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> you know, like, I worked my ass off for four years to not stick a needle in my arm. Believe me, Suboxone doesn't fucking keep me from going out and getting high. If oh, I want to go out and get high right now, I can go out and get high. 
I know you plenty know, of people that are on Suboxone or Methadone and they still get high. <laughs> you know, it's just their safety I'm net. Not, I was a meth addict too. So Suboxone is not keeping me from tweaking. If I wanted to, and that's the thing, like I've gained a, quite a bit of weight in my sobriety and that makes me super insecure, right? And so I can remember at a point in like a, about two and a half, three years, I was like, I need to get on Adipex, right? The doctor needs to give me Adipex so I can lose this weight. And then I like, prayed about it. I talked to my sponsor about it. She was like, Nicole, you're a meth addict. If you got on Adipex, you'd be eating them like a tweaker, you know? Yeah. But that's how my brain is wired. Like I, it, it and that just shows you the, the growth in me though, to realize like, Hey, I can't do that. Like I won't even take Benadryl man because I used to eat handfuls of Benadryl to knock myself out. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm saying like that's the kind of drug addict I am. Um, I will eat fucking um, one of those um, natural sleep aids that um, takes. They're not. Um, anyway, it's like a herb that you can take. It's a pill and you take that and it helps you. Melatonin. I would yeah. eat a whole bunch of those to change the way I felt. And so I've come so far to for someone to almost like that's what the thing. If you're truly working a program of recovery, you have no time to judge my recovery. If you're truly like trying to help others and lift them up and and really working what the program stands for in general, then you would open arms. Welcome. Hey, man, welcome. Whatever, whatever you got to do, you know, like it even states like we're not doctors. We aren't supposed to give medical advice, especially if we're working with others, you know, and um. I've read the big book from front to back, back to front and, and, and around again. And it, and it, and it talks about in there how Bill W was had, st- he had to take, what is it? Sedatives because when he was getting sober, um, I think he had the shakes or something, but it even talks about it in there. Like there was different medications that they had to take when they got sober, you know? And, and, and so, I've always heard so many people, like I hear some people who are like rogue AAers try to like, you know, fight with me or, or say, you know, ah, oh, you're not sober. First of all, sobriety is not drinking alcohol. So if we want to get technical, you know, fuck out of here. I'm sober. <laughs> I don't drink alcohol. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. there's so many loopholes to it. Like we can all sit here and do, if we're not, we're, none of us are sober, really. We're, we're drinking caffeine. And energy drinks like they're going out of style. Oh, I know. You know I just like, had one. <laughs> we're all doing some kind of mind or mood altering substance, you know, caffeine, cigarettes, vaping, whatever it is. It's like, come on now. Let's seriously, if your life is improving and you are like working a job and you're successful, you're able to contribute to society in a positive way, that's a win in my book. I got my son back. I have my husband, me and my husband really, we went and got married in February. We're really husband and wife now. You know, I've got my son. I have a home. I have two new cars out in the driveway. I got a credit card for emergencies. I got a savings account with about 500 bucks in it. I'm fucking doing great. I could have never done that before. I was on the streets before. I couldn't even save a dime before, you know? And today I can save, I can save money. Because I'm not going out trying to put it in my veins anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's a miracle. You know? I get so hype about it because it's like, and let me just tell you this. I know so many alcoholics who judge people like me for being on Suboxone who have prescriptions for Xanax, pain pills, and mental health medications. But they're, 
going to judge me for being on Suboxone. Oh, it's a total hypocrisy. It's, it's insane. Like, I, I, it will, what I, what I've said, what I've said before is, um, when people stopped, when people stop projecting inwards and, and looking at their own w- ways to improve because it's uncomfortable or for whatever reason, they tend to project outwardly and judge other people for how they're living their lives instead of focusing on just how to better their own lives, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, just one other thing I wanted to touch on is um, you've started a YouTube channel. Um, what What is that like? Because like, I've tried to do YouTube and vlogging. I've never really... It takes a lot of time. I know the YouTube uh, community is a lot more judgmental, a lot more trolling with comments. Um, what has that experience been like for you? It was a lot of hard work, first of all, because building an audience and getting your channel into the algorithm, like it's so hard to even get my videos recommended. Then once I got to um, a thousand subscribers and like 4,000 watch hours, now I've got like 110,000 views or something like that. But cause I've been doing it for about two years and I'm only at 1700 subscribers, but um, you get a lot of trolls. But what I do is I go into my settings and I block certain words. So people can't come in and say, Hey, junkie whore or Hey, suboxone liquor or anything like that. Like I block that shit, you know, but there's a whole community on YouTube that are recovery YouTubers. It's, it's pretty, cool yeah but it's been really hard and there's it's a lot of clicks it's like going back to high school yeah and uh it really really is and i'm not one of those people who's like going to kiss anybody's ass to like get a shout out on their channel or anything so i just kind of like have built it on from the ground up on my own you know and i just really try to just be authentic me and just, I just share my story just like I did today on your podcast. That's how I do on my channel. Like I don't, I don't edit. I don't like do anything fancy. I just tell my story and I try to help other people find recovery. And I'm real transparent about the fact that I'm on Suboxone. And that's one thing that has really brought a lot of people to my channel because there's so many people who are looking for support who are on Suboxone and don't have any support. And so that's kind of what we do on Monday nights. We do big book study. And then on Friday nights, we do Mara meetings, which is medically assisted recovery anonymous. And um, it's it's like 20 people come and I do it every Monday and Friday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. And it's, it's a really good turnout. And then I do story times. Like I told you all the stories today, like and people be laughing. (laughs) It's really, um, it's really cool. And I have a really good subscriber base, like, I try to be a really good example and stay positive and be a good leader. So my subscribers are the same way. Like I don't have a bunch of like trolls and shit. Now there's a couple people that don't like me. So they make videos about me, but (laughs) that's just when you're on YouTube and people don't like you and they take your content and they They say they're transformed. Yeah. But they're just making up shit. So I just kind of like, try to blow it off. You know, a lot of people are still struggling and sick. So I just try to think of it just like it says in the big book that they're sick still and some are sicker than others. And I just try to pray for them. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, I think with YouTube, that's part of the course. Like you'll put out a video kind of, um, trying to detail your point of view and then someone will twist it and chop up what you say to make it look like you said something else. I've noticed a lot of that within that, that whole scene, which is kind of what kind of, 
uh, made me uh, hesitant to even do my my YouTube channel. But um, I've I've seen and in the comments section can be so toxic. It's insane. Uh, but you know what? This is what I recommend. Wait until you're sober for one year and then make a channel because I waited a year until I had been in my recovery for a year. And then I made a channel because at the beginning of my sobriety, if people were calling me junkies or saying mean stuff to me, I would have, I don't know. I couldn't have handled that. So I waited and I really built up like a, you have an audience here on the nod squad that would follow you over to YouTube. You would be amazing. It would be so cool. And you could have people. (laughs) interviews on on the youtube it's man i'm i'm obsessed i think it's a great idea i think everybody should do it because it's so much fun definitely um i mean and i'll definitely have to stay in contact with you and get your advice about algorithm settings and ways to get around that whole that whole world because that's kind of foreign and new to me um it's hard youtube demonetizes anything that has anything to do with addiction like it's really it's difficult (laughs) I'm definitely not even, not even expecting to get any monetization out of that with the stories I tell. So. I don't. I don't. They demonetize all my stuff. Basically, anything that has anything to do with it that's like, even, I'm not promoting drugs. I'm just telling you about what it was like so you don't go on them yourself, you know? But YouTube's just crazy. It's like all these bots that pick up certain keywords, you know? Yeah. That's funny. Well, you know, our first idea for this whole project was to be a YouTube channel and to tell our stories. And then our friend was going to animate them into cartoons. And I was like, oh, we're going to get shut down immediately. <laughs> like Cartoons, depictions of war stories. I was like, this is going to be a nightmare. Like we'll be up for a week or who knows. But yeah, I'm glad we went with this route because I think audio, I think if people, a lot of people feel more comfortable going on a podcast where especially some of my previous guests who tell some crazy stories, they feel more comfortable, you know, having, you know, your voice and your audio is available, but then their face isn't. So I think they feel a lot more comfortable opening up and then telling that those raw stories and those real moments without feeling like they can feel like their identity is still protected. You know what I'm saying? Um, so it's been, it's been a, uh, an experience how this whole thing's evolved. Uh, I got to wrap this up, but before we go, is there anything you want to say to anyone out there who maybe still be struggling or anyone out there in general who's maybe young, uh, who's like even considering experimenting with drugs in general? Well, just let me tell you something. I've done enough experimenting for everybody <laughs> this side of the movie. Yeah. Do not do it. It's not worth it. It will suck your life away. And if you're struggling, just know that you're not alone. And if you'll just reach out for help, come over to Real Talk Recovery, hang out with us on my YouTube channel, hit up the Nod Squad in the comment section. I mean, you can always get help. All you have to do is reach out. You're never alone. alone.